Blog Talk Radio. Thank you. This is Smoke News Network, episode number three, 422-2018. All right, let's get this rolling, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. The best weed strains for mind-blowing sex. We turn to science and experts to find the most banging herb for banging. Which weed strain is best for sex is a difficult question to answer. In fact, says Erica Crumple of Los Angeles Cornerstone Collective, you can't make a blanket statement about things like this. There are simply too many variables. And what bud is best for the bedroom is pretty specific depending on the starting point before the drug is even introduced. For example, are you in pain, anxious, or using marijuana to give a boost to a dormant libido? There are different strains for different moods. But broadly speaking, for the more anxiety-prone, experts like Crumple say it's best to opt for a strain high in CBD and low in THC, a.k.a. tetrahydrocannabinol, the psychoactive chemical, that can trigger both euphoria as well as paranoia. Cannabinol or CBD is a cannabinoid in marijuana that helpful unfurl shoulder knots. It's what gives you that melted butter body high and therefore it can be helpful for getting in the mood. Relaxation, especially for those people vaginas and those with general anxiety, is essential for reaching orgasm. If you have anxiety with sex, you can ask your dispensary what varieties work best for anti-anxiety, says Vanessa Lomarato, proprietor of the cannabis Confoncier Marigold Suites. I can't say cannabis is some kind of wonder drug that's going to make you all of a sudden be able to have the best orgasm of your life, but for people who have anxiety, it definitely does help. If you have to actually figure out what kind of sex you want to be having, says sex educator Ashley. Manta is another variable to consider. Whatever strain you decide on, and for whatever reason, Manta says a major key in making cannabis and sex work for you and your partner is a little introspection. Do you want to have a slow, passionate sex with your partner that's really connected with eye-gazing and gentle with a lot of intimacy? Or are you looking for the like, oh my gosh, I just want to pound the heck out of you? In mind, an indica strain like Yumbold could be a good bet for intimate, snuggly sex as it boosts relaxation and happiness levels. To help with nerves, weed-centric media outlet Herb recommends indica strains like Northern Lights, as well as hybrid strains with an equal balance of THC and CBD for like one-to-one. For more energetic boning, Levado recommends Green Crack, which also gets a nod from the world's largest cannabis information resource, Leafly for those who's looking to perk up while getting down. If you want to fuck your brains out kind of stuff, I would look at strains that are high in pinene and limonene, which are two different terpenes, Monta says, 
terpenes as aromatic oils released in cannabis alongside cannabinoids. Not only do they dictate the smell of a certain strain, they can tweak psychological, psychoactive effects. Pinion, Mark Foote's super good spruce-like <clears throat> smell, helps you feel more alert, which can be helpful, assuming you're not content with being a dormant insect. On the other hand, Minions is notorious for its sour citrus odor and helps significantly at melting stress. Experts recommend experimenting with smoking or vaping versus something more lasting like an edible. That way, you can measure it out toke by toke and see how specific strains and terpenes affect your brain, bod, and bits. There are a lot of sex-specific cannabis products on the market, but the infamous weed lube Foria and the Dosit Aru's vape pen also come recommended. If you're new to weed sex, experimenting with different sorts of highs solos can give you the privacy and freedom to explore. Kicking off with the masturbation is such a smart thing. Mata says, above all else, if you're truly interested in infusing your sex life with cannabis, keep trying. There's no one-size-fits-all option. The key to getting it right is glorious trial and error with some applied knowledge about what it is you're smoking, vaping, eating in the bedroom. Considering the topic, it's a lesson most won't mind learning. All right, that was a first like a little article off the bat. Working on our little scroll in action. Here we go. This is a next article. CBD weed is more than getting high. This is by the Rocky Mountain Collegian. That uh, weed is more than getting high. THC shouldn't be getting all the attention. This 421 CBD is out here too. Cannabinol, abbreviated to CBD, is one of many <coughs> cannabinoids found in cannabis. However, CBD does not have psychoactive element that gives the high effect most of us associate with cannabis. CBD's main appeal is its medical benefits. According to Project CBD, CBD can help with inflammation, pain, anxiety, psychosis, seizures, spasms, and more, according to Hemp Health, Inc. CBD is the most prominent component in cannabis, taking up to about 40% of the plant. In my personal experience, CBD has been most effective in helping with my anxiety and my pain says Madi Sor, a senior majoring in journalism and CBD user, in an email to the Collegium. Its effects all happen at a molecular level, and the exact way it works is still being studied by science, and a lot of unknowns still remain when it comes to CBD. People haven't been able to do that kind of systematic research that you would like, says chemistry professor Dr. Anthony Rappe. A lot of these things are kind of anecdotal as opposed to scientifically based. It's not as studied as, say, the opioids. The molecule anadonamine naturally occurs in our bodies. 
anandamine is nicknamed the bliss molecule because it makes us feel a heightened sense of happiness. That is what CBD as well as THC binds to in our bodies. CBD interacts with various channels in our bodies to provide the effect it has, enhancing the effects of these channels. Namely, anandamine provides the blissful and therapeutic feeling, Rafi said. We know about endorphins and, if you will, people know how to enhance their production of endorphins. I don't know if anyone has a clue how to increase their concentration on anandamine. There may be ways as crazy as like yoga. There may be well be things that we do not do that cause an increase in production of this. We don't know if there's there we know it's a pain relief. It obviously serves a useful purpose. There's just a lot we don't know about it. Calling cannabis recreational could be incorrect. The term recreational is a misnomer, said Pauline, the marketing manager at Infinite Wellness Center. It should be adult use because you need to treat a condition of some use doesn't mean it requires medical marijuana. Specifically, the biggest difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana or adult use marijuana is simply the excise tax that we pay on it to the state and purchase tax the customer pays on it directly to the state. So past those restrictions, the only real difference you're going to see is potency on edibles and purchase amounts being different for people who qualify for an in-state Colorado medical card. For those who are reading this and thinking they know how it's going to affect their bodies, keep in mind that may not be the case. Everybody's different. Every person's endocannabinoid system is different, and so everyone will have a different reaction, Poland said. And the way you take it is going to be different, too. CBD can be purchased at dispensaries and some smoke shops if you're 18 or older. And uh, you got to really make sure your CBDs are from reputable sources. Very, very important. Dun, 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 dun. Smoke news radio. Boop, 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 Go scroll. Dun, 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 dun. Smoke news radio. Dun, dun, dun. Look, scroll. Dun, dun, dun. Over there. There. Dun, dun. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, Yes. Smoke News Radio wants to know, do you drive high? This is the Boulder Weekly. Dear Kirby, what has been the impact of legal cannabis on traffic safety? Is it common knowledge that driving while stoned is illegal? And do marijuana users even care? Amid the rise of auto fatalities involving marijuana across the state, the Colorado Department of Transportation, Law Enforcement, and the Marijuana Industry are launching a new campaign called the Cannabis Conversation. Between 13 and 16, drivers involved in fatal accidents increased about 40%. During that time, the number of drivers who tested positive for alcohol in those accidents increased 17%. However, the number of drivers who tested positive for cannabis jumped from 47% to 115%, okay, in 2016, to 140% uptick. In an effort to develop practical solutions, officials are conducting a survey that seeks input from cannabis users and non-users alike to better understand 
public attitudes and behaviors around driving under the influence. The survey is anonymous and takes between five to ten minutes to complete. It seeks to gather data about consumption habits and the perceptions of those habits. The questions ask participants things like how often they drive, where and how often they use cannabis, and whether or not they believe cannabis is still stigmatized by society. Further, along in the survey, participants must identify how capable they think law enforcement is at recognizing drug driving. At the end, questions focus on whether users are aware of legalities of driving while stoned. Do they think cannabis makes you a better driver? What would convince you not to drive high? If you knew cops were just as good at catching high drivers than drunk drivers, would you drive high less often? Since this is a relatively new concern that has developed alongside progressive marijuana laws, the data is conflicting and it's unclear how much marijuana use contributes to crash risk. While stoners can perform simple tasks while high, brain imaging has shown they have used more of their brain to do so. Cannabis has been shown to impair critical driving-related skills, including psychomotor abilities like reaction time, tracking ability, cognitive skills like judgment, anticipation, and executive functions like route planning and risk-taking. On the other hand, marijuana users tend to be aware they are impaired and try to compensate for it. Research has shown that people who are slightly stoned may be more risk-averse and overestimate their impairment. But the legal issues have been further complicated by the fact that testing for cannabis consumption is problematic. Smoking one joint typically raises a person's THC levels to about 20 micrograms per liter. The legal limit in Colorado is 5 micrograms per liter, less than half that amount found to be impaired impairing in various studies. There's no way to measure marijuana with a breathalyzer, so researchers use blood tests, but blood concentrations of THC can stay persistently high in chronic users. In a traffic fatality research, any amount of THC in the blood, no matter how tiny, counts as a positive drug test. Meaning some of the people whose deaths were, were counted in such studies may have not been high at the time of the accident. While very high levels of THC do indicate recent consumption, it is very unlikely law enforcement will encounter a suspect and obtain a blood sample within a short enough time frame for high THC levels to be detected. Impairment is observed at two to three hours after smoking, but peak THC levels have declined 80 to 90% within an hour. There are currently campaigns to raise the blood THC limit to five nanograms and to request exemptions for medical marijuana patients. This is due in part to the fact that some medical patients claim to need marijuana in order to drive more responsibly. As enlightened boulderites, we know that happiness in life lies in the journey and not just in the destination. Understanding this is what makes road tripping around our great state so much fun. It's not just getting there that matters, but having fun in the process. Who doesn't feel young and wild and free when, when they're heading to the mountains for a weekend, packed in a Subaru filled with climbing gear and passed around a joint among friends? No matter how invincible you may feel, to be perfectly clear, it's always safer to drive when you're not stoned. Sometimes, yeah, a lot of people don't know how to drive. Too many things going on. Anyhow, you know, Give me the joint. You know, people's lives are at hand. Don't be using autopilot, especially 
You know, you got to freaking feel your driving of the road. Feel it. Because uh, that's yours, you know. That's that's yours. You know, where are we? We're in existence. We are spinning on a rock very fast. So, just check this out. About uh, some more of the ganja worldwide. Let's check out what our neighbors are up to. Uh, I get that scroll going. There we go. It's, it's always one trying to add one more piece to the puzzle every day of the year on this little beep, beep, beep. Get an Apple ID. Use the software. They do things differently in Mexico. It's from the Boulder Weekly. Check out how Mexico is working on their marijuana. They do things differently in Mexico, especially when it comes to human rights and legalizing pot. Back in 2015, four members of the Mexican Society for Responsible and Tolerant Consumption, the Spanish acronym is SMART, sued in the Mexican Supreme Court for the right to grow, use, and transport marijuana. They argue that the prohibition of marijuana violates a person's fundamental human rights to the free development of personality. Okay, if someone were to come into an American court and argue that U.S. anti-marijuana laws violated his right to the free development of personality, chances are the judge would react about the same way George III did when he got to the line in the Declaration of Independence that said, all men are created equal. But in Mexico, they do things differently. According to a piece at the blog Urbco by Declan, the right to... The free development of personality is found in the Mexican Constitution. It's also found in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Basically, it means that individuals have the right to decide what's best for their lives and bodies as long as it doesn't interfere with the rights of others. Jonathan writes, therefore, every adult has the right to decide if they want to use cannabis or not, so long as it's not affecting anybody else. Many compare the argument to eating junk food, she adds. It's not good for you. doesn't have the right to stop you. Boulder Soda Pop Taxi. Okay. Darned if the smart four didn't win, a panel of the Mexican Supremes ruled in their favor by a 4-1 vote. So why aren't Mexicans lighting up from Rio Grande to Rio Usumacinta? Well, that's because they do things differently in Mexico. Unlike the U.S., where the Supreme Court only has to rule once to determine the constitutionality of a law, in Mexico, the Supreme Court has to issue the same ruling five times before it sticks. After the Supreme Court has the same way five times, it issues a general ruling called a jurisprudential thesis. It's only then that the ruling becomes the supreme law of the land. Until the jurisprudential thesis comes out, the ruling in the individual cases applies only to the plaintiffs in those cases, which means that as things stand now, the smart four have the right to smoke marijuana in Mexico, but until the court rules the same way in four more cases, the other 112 million people in the country do not. The other 112 people in the country do not. According to Janikan, the procedure is the way 
the Mexican Supreme Court legalized gay marriage in 2015. After ruling against gay marriage bans five times, the court issued a jurisprudential thesis stating that laws restricting marriage to heterosexual couples were discriminatory and unconstitutional. Initial consideration of the second case is due to start this year. It's being brought by a lawyer named Ulrich Reichter, as in the first case. He's arguing that the prohibition of marijuana violates a person's right to the free development of personality. This raises an interesting question. The U.S. Constitution doesn't contain an explicit right to the free development of personality, but the Supremes conceivable discover one in there. The same way the court discovered a right to privacy and, by extension, a right to abortion in the early 70s. If you stop to think about it, while the right to the free development of the personality may not be in the Bill of Rights, the concept isn't all that different from the one of the rights Mr. Jefferson put in his Declaration of Independence. It's called the pursuit of happiness. pursuit of happiness and battery power. It doesn't take a legal genius to see that if it had been included in the Constitution, chances are we would would be a much freer and probably more tolerant country than we are today. Like I said, they do things differently in Mexico, and maybe they could teach the Colosso del Norte a thing or two about human rights and the rule of law. All right. Ooh. Hey, video baby. My, my, my video baby went jumping around and see what she's up to. Video lady. Add me a little something, something, something. Do, 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 Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. Hey, this is still, you know, this is all patchwork, ladies and gentlemen. Things are so just patched together, shoestrings, and like old iPhone headphones. You know, if you use the cables right, they become like proper connectors. And if this thing wants to do it right, You can see at home some of the fun connections. Just connect. See right here. You're alive. You're alive. You're alive. You are alive. I mean, you know, sometimes you have the, the cameras go through the fiery hoops. No, no, maybe that won't work. Maybe it keeps telling me there's no internet there. But it's not supposed to have internet. I mean, the computer's supposed to be able to connect to a lot of things. The internet, the metrics, you know, it's what we do in computer. What are we doing? What are we doing, y'all? At one point, you work like you worked before. You worked strong time. You worked eloquently. Kunshivan TV. Well, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it wants to work how you want it to work. How you need it to work. Windows, Windows. T network doesn't have internet. It has the other intranet connection. So okay, we go back to the other camera. Let's go back to the other camera. This one does not want to do its thing. Let's go properties. All right. Hello. Is this is this good? Now I've got to look down here. I can't really. Okay. All right. Now we're back. Let's start off this one with a good shot. Let's go. Let's rock and roll. Okay. People who smoke weed are richer, more successful, and happier. Study finds. Indie Life cannabis users are more successful and satisfied, finds a new study. Consumers are frequently affiliated with lazy, unsuccessful, and apathetic labels. But contrary to the popular stereotype, new research suggests they are, in fact, among the most satisfied and successful users. The study conducted by market research at BDS Analytics surveyed consumers and abstainers across a wide variety of mental, social, and financial factors. These include life satisfaction levels, attitudes toward parenting, and employment data. The survey analyzed extensive data from two U.S. states that have voted to legalize the sale of cannabis. 
Yes. <laughs> Gotta turn the stream back on. What's up, stream? All right, and then stream in the house. There we go. All right. Monty myths of low motivation user achievement in California. It was found that 20% of consumers had graduated with a master's degree, while the figure was 12% for those who wouldn't consider trying cannabis. In terms of household income, the figure was 93,000, 73 pounds. Consumers higher than 70,000 average for abstainers. Similar results were found in Colorado. with 64% of cannabis consumers in full-time jobs compared to 50% of those who would not consider consuming the drug. The finding that consumers are more likely to be parents also refutes the familiar stereotypes of cannabis users being irresponsible. In California, 64% of consumers had started a family while the figure of abstainers stood at a 55%. In terms of life satisfaction, Nearly 5 in 10 Colorado consumers agree that they are more satisfied with life today than they were a year ago, compared to about 4 in 10 among those who avoid cannabis. Healthier habits and social activity also correlated. In Colorado, 36% of consumers described themselves as very social people, whereas only 28% of marijuana avoiders said the same. Consumers in both Colorado and California also said they enjoyed outdoor recreation at significantly higher rates. Volunteering was also more common for consumers with 38% in California offering their time to help others. By contrast, 25% of rejectors in the state said they volunteered. Cannabis consumers are far removed from the caricatures historically used to describe them. Susan Linda Gilbert, head of the Consumer Research Division, in a press release. With public support for cannabis legalization at an all-time high, it seems that common idea of the underachieving idle cannabis consumer could be on its way out. Those guys don't know how to plug anything in at all. No, Why plastic derived from cannabis could save the planet. Rubbish at garbage dump and icebergs in Ilsat. In Disco Bay, Greenland, invisible photo. Hemp plastic is a biodegradable, sustainable, and non-toxic alternative to petroleum-based plastics that are littering our environment. So why aren't more people talking about it? Hemp is one of the most versatile plants on the planet. Not only can it be used to make medicine like CBD oil, but it can be turned into fiber for things like clothes and paper. Its seeds are incredibly nutritious, and it can be used as a fuel source. But did you know that its stalks can be used to make hemp plastic? As plastic continues to pollute our environment, many are looking to hemp plastics as an alternative. Plastic and the environment. 
Plastic production began less than 80 years ago, but we've already produced more than 8 billion tons of it since the 1950s. Sadly, only 9% of that plastic has been recycled. About 12% has been incinerated, but the remaining 79% just sits on our planet, either in landfills or as litter, like in our oceans. Yet more than 300 million tons of plastic are still manufactured every year. More than 8 million tons of plastic are dumped into our oceans every year, and it's ruining our environment. By 2015, there will be more plastic in the sea than fish. What's more, a 2006 study found there might, be, might not be any saltwater fish at all by the, that time due to the combination of pollution, climate change, and other factors. All ocean fish could be extinct by 2048. We've already seen a 90% decrease in 29% of edible fish and sea species. But plastic in the ocean is more than just running out of seafood. The, these species filter toxins from the sea, protect the shoreline, and reduce the risk of dangerous algae blooms. So when they go, the sea, the coast, and the entire planet will suffer immensely. According to the UN Environmental Program, more than 600 species of animals, including fish, turtles, marine mammals, birds, have consumed plastic debris. There's also the famous Great Pacific Garbage Patch that floats between the west coast of the U.S. and Japan. It's an enormous mass of non-biodegradable plastic, bigger than some islands. These plastics don't break down. They're just broken down into smaller pieces known as microplastics. Fish consume microplastics for algae and plankton, and eat them. Since humans consume fish, we are also eating these microplastics. Current plastics are commonly made from petroleum and contain toxins and chemicals like BPA. According to the CDC, 93% of people have BPA in their urine, and it can increase the risk of heart disease and diabetes. How can hemp plastic help? There are a few ways hemp plastic can help. The most critical being that hemp plastic is a non-toxic and biodegradable. Therefore, hemp plastic won't pollute our oceans, groundwater, and landfills as much because it would eventually disintegrate. However, it's not that easy. Biodegradable plastics like hemp plastic still need to be sent to special commercial composting facilities to be recycled, which are expensive. Plus, nothing biodegrades very well in landfills. Not to mention, hemp plastic could still harm the oceans because it biodegrades at high temperatures. However, it's still more sustainable than the petroleum-based plastics we use today. The hemp plant itself has a relatively small carbon footprint. Studies have shown hemp plastic can reduce CO2 emissions by 30 to 80% when compared to oil-based plastics. That's partly because the hemp requires a lot of CO2 to grow which can help remove the, CO, can remove the greenhouse gas from our planet atmosphere permanently, known as carbon-negative resource. Hemp can be considered more sustainable because it requires less pesticides to grow than many other crops. However, it does need a significant amount of water and labor to thrive. Even though hemp plants can require a lot of fertilizer, they can actually leave the soil cleaner than how they found it. That's because a hemp plant has the power of phytoremediation, 
which is the ability to decontaminate soil. Hemp is being used to clean the soil near Chernobyl and neighboring Delarius. Not only does it decontaminate the soil, it's an exceptional, exceptional phytoremediation tool because once hemp has absorbed toxins, about 75% of the harvested plant can still be utilized. Is hemp plastic legal? Hemp is still difficult or outright illegal to grow in much of the world. In the U.S., some farmers can grow hemp through special state-sponsored programs, thanks to a thanks to 2014 Farm Bill. The Farm Bill redefined hemp as having less than 0.3% THC or less, differentiating it from the illegal cannabis sativa plant. How is hemp plastic made? Hemp plastic is made using hemp cellulose. Cellulose is the most common organic polymer on the planet and is used to make different plastics, including celluloid, cellophane, and rayon. Hemp stalks are up to 77% cellulose, making them an ideal source for some perspective, and wood contains about 40%. Flax contains about 90%, and cotton has up to 90% cellulose. But hemp is especially handy because it grows so much faster than most trees and needs less pesticides than flax or cotton. Plus, hemp is both strong and flexible. So hemp plastic is well. Hemp cellulose derived from female plants is particularly durable with tons of impact resistance. Do any products use hemp plastic? Um, Mercedes Benz uses some but doesn't advertise it. Not really, but it doesn't mean companies aren't trying. There are a few Kickstarter campaigns for startups using hemp plastic. Plus, there are also companies selling hemp plastic 3D printing filaments. So anyone with a 3D printer can make their own hemp plastic items. One of the most famous brands considering hemp plastic is Lego. In 2015, Lego announced it was investing $150 million into research and development of sustainable materials to make Legos. The plan is to fully implement sustainable bio-based Legos by 2030. Like other plastic, Legos are currently petroleum-based and therefore can release toxins into the environment. Could hemp plastic be the future? We sure hope so, but hemp plastic will not solve all the world's plastic pollution problems. In fact, saving the environment starts with you your plastic consumption, the real answer is for individuals to dramatically decrease their use of everyday, convenient plastic items like bags, bottles, and straws. This is by Michael Jenikin, March 26, 2018. Ah. Yes, it's getting serious here, ladies and gentlemen. Smoke News Radio. Yes. All right. Out in uh, Wichita Falls. Student was caught with marijuana cookies at school. Okay. I mean, it's fun to just laugh about ha, ha, ha. But kids are, these things are so simple for kids to hold. And there's still strict laws everywhere. At Hirsch High School, a student was arrested Wednesday after being reportedly caught with a bag of marijuana cookies 
at school back in August 2017. Mr. Garcia, 17, Mark Antonio, is charged with possession of a controlled substance in penalty group 2, weighing more than 4 grams, but less than 200 grams. The charge was enhanced to a first-degree felony due to the crime occurring in a drug-free zone. According to arrest warrant affidavit on August 25th, 17, Wichita Falls police were sent to Hearst High School for a student being in possession of possible marijuana cookies. The officer met with a teacher who reportedly received an anonymous tip from a student that said Garcia was selling the cookies at school. The teacher said she saw Garcia holding a clear plastic bag containing what appeared to be golden-colored cookies in it. She said Garcia was talking to two girls, and each of them had money in their hands. The teacher approached Garcia and told him to go to the office, at which time Garcia attempted to give the bag of cookies to another student. The teacher reportedly told Garcia the bag of cookies was staying with him. After reaching the office, the teacher opened the bag and noticed it smelled strongly of marijuana. School officials then contacted the police. The teacher handed the plastic bag containing five cookies that smelled like marijuana to the officer. The total weight of the cookies was 108 grams. They were packaged by the officer and turned into the what the PD department's property room drop box. Garcia was released pending test results on the alleged marijuana cookies. On August 30, 2017, the officer packaged and mailed the suspected cookies to the Texas Department of Public Safety Laboratory in Abilene. The lab sent their findings back on March 28th. The DPS lab indicated the cookies tested positive for tetrahydrocaminol. Arrest warrant was requested and issued for Garcia based on the results. Senators press Google and Twitter for answers on privacy. This is by Stephen T. Dennis. More stories. And, uh, and Billy House. April 20th, 2018. The chief executive officer of Google and Twitter may be next to follow Mark Zuckerberg into a gauntlet of congressional hearings. The Senate Commerce Chairman John Thune said he's considering another public hearing on data privacy and spoke with his representatives of Alphabet Inc.'s Google this week, suggesting the company send CEO Sundar Pichai to answer questions. I've told them 
I'd like to have them come in and talk to us about data privacy, maybe some of the other social media platforms as well, Then said in an interview. It'll help to really know what they're doing. It'll help to instruct and what we might be thinking about doing. We haven't scheduled anything yet, but we're having conversations with them. Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook Inc., spent about 10 hours over two days this month answering a barrage of questions from lawmakers in the House and Senate hearings, triggered by revelations of a British firm that ties to Donald Trump's 2016 campaign harvested information from as many as 87 million Facebook users without their knowledge. And use of the data by Cambridge Analytica has prompted questions about Internet privacy and calls for potential government regulation to protect personal data. Privacy practices. Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley, who originally sought to schedule all three major social media companies' CEOs before Zuckerberg became the focus of the inquiries, said this week he may seek testimony from Pachai and Twitter Inc.'s Jay Dorsey. He sent them letters the day Zuckerberg's hearing asked them about their data privacy practices and actions to counter foreign interference in U.S. elections. He told them he wanted answers by April 25th. The representatives of Google Twitter declined to comment. Grassi and Thune, whose committees jointly questioned Zuckerberg, but said they also will continue to probe Cambridge Analytica's alleged diversion of millions of Facebook profiles for political use. Again, some information from Facebook about other analytical firms, what they did business with, and they're trying to quantify what universe is, and then we'll probably look at the whole issue with Cambridge and perhaps some other firms instead. Grassi said he still plans a public hearing on Cambridge Analytica. Election interference. Senate Intelligence Chairman Richard Burr also plans a hearing featuring the technology companies in a few months as his panel wraps up a report on Russia's use of social media to influence U.S. politics. Burr hasn't yet demanded the CEOs testify. But Mark Warner, the top Democrat in the panel, wants to bring Zuckerberg back to the Capitol along with Dorsey and Bachai, rather than a settlement for repeat performance by company lawyers who testified to the committee last year. We've got to hold people's feet to the fire, Warner said. Frankly, we're going to need to hear from more than the CEO of Facebook. We're going to need to hear from the CEOs of Twitter and Google as well. There are smaller platform companies, and there are smaller platform companies. Warner said he's concerned the companies and the country aren't yet prepared for continued Russian political interference through hacking and fake accounts or for potential deployment of new tools for misinformation, including deep fake technology that can put false words in someone else's mouth. Ad disclosures. As for legislation, the Bipartisan Honest Ads Act, sponsored by Warner and Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, which would require the disclosure on online political advertising is picked up to support of Facebook, Twitter, and Microsoft Corp., among others. We need Google as well, Warner said. It's not yet clear if the measure has enough Republican backing to become law. Kovacher and Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, both members of the Judiciary Committee, also have proposed new privacy legislation, including 
a requirement that companies notify users of a breach of their information within 72 hours and give users a right to opt out of data tracking and collection. House Democrats, meanwhile, announced the plan to interview Cambridge Analytica whistleblower Christopher Wiley next week behind closed doors, hearing on filtering. Separately, the House Judiciary Committee has scheduled a hearing Thursday on the metric that social media platforms use to moderate content, how filtering decisions are made, and whether viewpoints have been silenced. Representatives of Facebook, Google, and Twitter have been invited to testify, as will Representatives Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee Republican, running for the U.S. Senate, who has a bill that would put into place consumer privacy protection for Internet users. Others who will come before the committee include social media personalities, Diamond and Silk, video blogging sisters who backed Trump and were deemed unsafe by Facebook and what Zuckerberg later called an enforcement error, Corn McSherry Legal Corn McSherry Legal Corrine, uh, Legal Director of PF Electronic Frontier Foundation, David Chavern, CEO of News Media Alliance. The advent of social media has made it possible for people to connect across continents, explore vast amounts of information, and share meaningful dialogue with friends and strangers. Committee Chairman Bob Godlet of Virginia sent a statement. However, the same technology can be used to press a particular viewpoint and manipulate public opinion. Right? But really, no. They're just tracking you. But it's good to stop any group from trying to manipulate public opinion. Not even just invisible Russians who don't have faces, but it is generic. The generic Russians are doing this with this one company or doing that. You know, like The generic Russians. This guy, he's, he's a Russian. He's been doing it. It's bad. You know, Russia's an awesome place from what I heard. They got some cool things going on. Stop blaming them and touting their name around. The U.S. There is no the U.S. There is no the Russian. There's Russian business people that have money that are paying for those things to happen. Zuckerberg's not like, okay, well, let's uh, let's find some Russian guys and let's follow their views for free. No, people throwing down cash. You just like start looking at the money trails. Where's the money come from? Where's the money, 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 money? Continue on, ladies and gentlemen. Smoke. Smoke News Radio. Live and direct. What's going down, Europe? How Europe's breakthrough privacy law takes on Facebook and Google. Europe's general protection regulation is forcing big changes at the tech's biggest firm, even if the U.S. isn't likely to follow suit. Thursday, 19th, April 2018. Despite the political theater of Mark Zuckerberg's congressional interrogations last week, Facebook's business model isn't at any real risk from regulators in the U.S. In Europe, however, the looming general data protection regulation will give people better privacy protections and force companies, including Facebook, to make sweeping changes to the way they collect data and consent from users. The huge fines for those who don't comply. It's changing the balance of power from the giant digital marketing companies to the focus on the needs of individuals in democratic society, 
to Jeffrey Chancellor, founder of the Center for Digital Democracy. That's an incredible breakthrough. Here's a simple guide to the new rules. What is GDPR? It is a regulation that requires companies to protect the personal data and privacy of residents of EU countries. It replaces an outdated data protection directive from 95 and restricts the way businesses collect, store, and export people's personal data. Consumers have been abused, says David Coral, an associate professor at Parsons School of Design in New York. Marketers have succeeded in making people feel powerless and resigned to gain the short end of the bargain. GDPR gives the consumers a chance to renegotiate that very unfair deal. Does it only affect European companies? No. It applies to all companies that process personal data of people residing in the European Union. What counts as personal data? Any information related to a person can be used to identify them, including their name, photo, email address, IP address, bank details, posts on a social networking site, medical uh, information, HIPAA, biometric data, and sexual orientation. What new rights do people get? The GDPR, people get expanded rights to obtain the data that a company has collected about them for free through a data subject request. People will also have the right to be forgotten, which means company must delete someone's data if they withdraw their consent for it to be held. Companies will only be able to collect data if there's specific businesses purpose for it, rather than collecting extra information at the point of sign-up, just in case. It makes companies become much more thoughtful and rigorous about the data they collect and what they use it for, Carol said. Companies will have to replace long terms and conditions filled with the legalese with simple-to-digest consent requests. It must be as easy to withdraw consent as, it is, as to give it. Finally, a company has a data breach, it must inform users within 72 hours. What makes this a potential game changer is that the amount of power it places in the hands of the public, says attorney Jason Strait, who is chief privacy officer at legal services company United Lex. What about people outside of Europe? Although it only applies to people located in the EU, the new rules will probably put pressure on companies to offer further protections for the rest of their users. Facebook, for example, has, has pledged to offer GDPR privacy controls globally. This will be good for everyone, said Chris Lahir, co-founder of the cloud-sharing company Ignite, pointed out that global customers will demand the same rights as their European counterparts. Which companies have the most work to do? The big data-hungry technology platforms like Amazon, Google, and Facebook and advertising technology companies such as Critio, whose technology powers those ads featuring products you browse online that follow you around the Internet. What is Facebook doing to comply? Having said it would follow GDPR in spirit, Facebook's actions tell a different story. On Wednesday, Reuters reported that the company would change its terms of service so that its 1.5 billion non-European users would no longer be covered by the privacy law. Until now, all users outside the USA and Canada have been governed by terms of service agreed with the company's internal headquarters in Ireland. 
since any user data processed in Ireland will soon fall under GDPR, Facebook is changing the agreement so users in Africa, Asia, Australia, Latin America are governed by more lenient USD privacy laws. Where it needs to comply with GDPR, Facebook seems to have focused its efforts on getting user consent for its data collection practices, including facial biometric data. Rather than reducing the data it collects, is developed a sequence of consent requests that explicitly outline how each type of data will be used. However, as TechCrunch highlighted, the company has designed these requests in a way that makes it harder to opt out than opt in. What about startups who don't have the same resources? Complying with GDPR may be a little wondrous for companies that don't have the engineering resources of Facebook or Google. A company According to PwC survey, 68% of U.S. companies expect to spend between $1 and $10 million to comply with GDPR. And there's another way they'll get strung. GDPR consultants charging enormous fees for patchy advice. What are the penalties for companies that don't comply? Companies can be fined up to 4% of annual global revenue but it will come down to how regulators in individual countries choose to enforce the law. When does it come into effect? The 25th of May, 2018. It's too early for some. There's a panic mode setting in as everyone is getting closer to this deadline, said Lahiri. This article was amended on April 18th to clarify that GDPR protections may apply to anyone located within the EU not just residents. Since you're here, we have a small favor to ask. More people are reading The Guardian than ever. All right, so help The Guardian out. Guardian Magazine rocks. I appreciate there's not being a paywall. Right, yes. Okay, well, there's your paywall. So basically, if you, you... You fall under, so if you travel to the EU, your privacy files have to be transferred with you. Um, Not just residents, protections, apply to anyone located in the EU. Maybe, maybe, maybe you need to look at that a little closer. Hey, what's up with you? Wait, wait, what, what can you do with my data? No, I'm not going to give you passwords. I don't have passwords. I don't use social media. So, Pentagon UFO project could have secret info that solves Britain's Roswell. Pentagon top secret UFO project investigating UFO reports could have groundbreaking information that solves Britain's Roswell. April 22, 18. New evidence released on Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. So it says Nick Pope, who investigated the strange phenomena for the Ministry of Defense. The massive Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program also explored reports of flying saucers. 
Since it was exposed last year, three videos have shown bizarre encounters with pilots and inexplicably fast aircraft. And Mr. Pope believes AATIP could solve the famous Rinosham Force incident on Boxing Day from the 80s in Suffolk. The uh, Rinosham Force has been described as the UK Roswell. Two members of the U.S. Air Force, John Burroughs and Jim Pettigrew, in nearby Bentwater's room bases went to investigate a suspected civilian plane crash. They stumbled upon an unknown craft displaying strange hieroglyphic symbols which accelerated away at high speed after they touched it. The UFO briefly tracked on radar and reportedly turned two days later and fired beams at Air Force crew in a sensitive area of the Woodbridge base. The former MOD expert said when the, hits, when the story about the Pentagon's secret UFO project first broke, there was an intriguing reference to AATIP having dossier detaining the best UFO cases from around the world. Apart from Roswell, the Rendlesham Force incident is the best-known UFO case in the world, so it's logical it would be in the AATIP's dossier, especially as the Rendlesham witnesses were U.S. military personnel. Security Officer Larry Warren discusses Rennerson's UFO. Mr. Pope said that all the freedom of information requests for details aimed to PBR work have rejected on national security grounds. Special relationship between the U.S. and U.K. remains strong, but there's been very little intelligence sharing about UFOs. Mr. Pope claimed that an MOD assessment talked about what kind of novel military applications could come from UFOs. Governments and even allies are in competition with each other over this, and they don't want to give their game away. He believes that the X-Files type investigations of the Pentagon project could have answers about mystery radiations associated with flying saucers. UFOs and pictures seen as believing. He said in later MOD intelligence assessment of the UFO phenomenon, more generally, my colleagues looked again at Ranshine, and their final report contained the bombshell symptoms, the well-reported Randlesham Forest Bentwaters event. It is an example where it might be postulated that several observers were probably exposed to UAP unidentified aerial phenomenon radiation for longer than normal UAP sightings period. It'd be intrigued to know what information ATIP has about this and what they concluded. In parallel with analyzing videos of military jets chasing UFOs like the three that have already been released, ATIP seems to have looked at the psychological effects of UFOs on people who had extremely close encounters as was the case from Rendersham. The radiation could have come from an exotic energy source or a propulsion system cell suggested. What is that mysterious UFO leaves U.S. pilots baffled? An ex-military intelligence officer, Luis Olasanio, who ran ATIP, recently made an astonishing claim about the technology behind the UFOs. He revealed scientists conclude the craft can effectively create their own time-space bubble, which allows them to fly at such incredible speeds. While the U.S. government said ATIP was closed and 2012, Alonzo claimed he worked a highly sensitive project last year. There we go. Yeah, so cool. You know, random sites talking about UFOs. Now, what's, what's the ABC News talking about UFOs? How UFO sightings have captured human imagination for centuries by Morgan Windsor, ABC News, March 31st, 2018, 6.08 a.m. Eastern time. 
For centuries, mankind has reported seeing UFOs in various parts of the world. The alleged sightings have captivated the public imagination and raised questions about life beyond our planet. Early cave drawings, ancient texts, and centuries-old paintings appear to depict or describe human contact with extraterrestrial beings and UFOs or unidentified flying objects. For instance, the 1710 painting of Dutch artist Ari de Gruyter appears to show a UFO illuminating the baptism of Jesus Christ. In modern times, reported sightings of UFOs have captured headlines and newscasts worldwide. Most recently, media attention turned to an audio recording released by the Federal Aviation Administration in which two pilots flying on different aircraft above Arizona in late February reported having close encounters with a mysterious object. According to the FBI, a rash of sightings of UFOs swept the United States in 1947 after World War II amid a heightened interest in aerospace flight and technology. The FBI says it helped investigation, investigate the claims between 1947 and 54. Although the newly formed U.S. Air Force was primary investigator of these sightings, the FBI received many reports and worked for a time with the airports to investigate these matters. The agency says on its website, where records of some of the reports are published, perhaps the most famous incident took place northwest of Roswell, New Mexico in the summer of 47, when a foreman of, of the ranch came across mysterious debris, including metal rods and paper-thin metallic-looking scraps. The man, William Brazel, reported the strange records to the local sheriff and the nearby Roswell Army Air- Airfield. Major Jess Marcel and other intelligence officers were sent to recover the materials, according to the Roswell Daily Record. Public information officer for the Roswell Army Airfield then released a state officers and retrieved a flying disc which had crashed on the ranch near Roswell. Military, military officials later retracted the statement after investigating the debris, saying it was actually remnants of a downed weather balloon. I'm sure what I found was not any weather observation balloon, Brazil told the newspaper in an interview in 47. Since the incident near Roswell, a number of non-governmental organizations were set up to investigate alleged UFO sightings. The Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, founded in 69, is said to be the oldest and largest in the U.S. The Ohio-based nonprofit catalogs and probes cases of reported sightings from around the world. MUFON recorded 7,659 worldwide reports of US UFO sightings in 2017, according to its state rate. It has more than 800 reports so far this year. The National UFO Reporting Center, New Fork, has been recording and investigating alleged sightings and contacts with extraterrestrials since 74. People have submitted reports to the Washington State-based group claiming to have seen an unexplained object after making no audible sounds as it moves in the sky, emits beams of light, or changes color. A woman reported seeing small metallic spheres in the sky while looking at her kitchen window in Northside, Washington in the afternoon of the 19th of March. She thought they were birds at first until they began to weave through the dark clouds and they reflected the sun, the woman said in her report to Norfolk. As I walked, I watched them move up and down through the clouds side by side and they were gone. It disappeared into the clouds, and I haven't seen them since. Speaking to ABC News late last year, retired U.S. Navy Commander David Faber described seeing a 40-foot-long wingless object during a routine training mission 
off California's coast in November 14, 2014. The former pilot recalled how the object flew at incredible speeds in an erratic pattern, though he said it had no exhaust show in infrared scanning. I can tell you I think it was not from this world. Fair told ABC News in an interview in 2017. I'm not crazy. I haven't been drinking. It was after 18 years of flying, I've seen about pretty much everything that I can see in that realm. This was nothing close. Favors' retelling of this bizarre account came after the U.S. Department's defense confirmed ABC News that it ran a program for investigating reports of UFOs for years. The once-secret program was funded from 2017 to 12, according to the New York Times. The Department of Defense spent 20 Two million on the endeavor. The Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program ended 12 time frame. The Pentagon told the ABC News in statements 2017 it was determined that w- that there were other higher priority issues that merited funding, and it was in the best interest of the Department of Defense to make a change. The Department of Defense takes seriously all threats and potential threats to our people, our assets, and our mission. Takes action whenever credible and. In- whenever credible information is developed. More, re- more recently, the Federal Aviation Administration released audio recordings of the conversation between air traffic control and two pilots on two different aircraft who both reported having close encounters with a mysterious object flying high above southern Arizona within minutes of each other on February 24th. Something just passed over, as one of the pilots said, Albuquerque air traffic control thing. I don't know what it was. Spokesman's for the FAA told ABC News that the controller was unable to verify that any other aircraft was in the area at the time of the reported sightings. People have been seeing UFOs for a while. Like, there's all sorts of, like, old stuff. They're even like, hey, old, old thing, look, Jesus. But, like, they even talk about India. There's a lot of good stuff out there. All right. We continue. Up news radio. All right. Science War Authority, California's water math does not compute. California has little time to create solutions to water sustainability. A growing shortfall of irrigation water in California's San Joaquin Valley could lead to over 700,000 acres of land retirement. Even with new conveyance and temperance flat reservoir, a water official says with possible construction of dams like temperance flat, a minimum of 20 years away, there seems to be little to stop what could be a mass following of farmland within the next decade. Jason Phillips, chief executive officer of Friant Water Authority, says there is a myriad of necessary steps state and federal officials must take to ensure that farmers have the water they need to grow the estimated 400 crops California can produce. These changes need to come quickly as implementation of the State Groundwater Management Act will begin setting severe limits on groundwater pumping as soon as 2020. For some farmers, that could mean pumps would be idle, as sustainable water deliveries from wells may be less than one foot of water per year. During the Friant Water Authority annual meeting, at Fresno, Phillips illustrated farm water losses that would have occurred since implementation of the Central Central Valley Project Improvement Act in the early 1990s. He also spelled out the political reasons for those losses and the difficulties in correcting them, since some of the reductions came about through federal court decisions, engineering, and math. Phillips is an engineer. He explained to an audience of about 250 district members and guests that the water math doesn't compute. 
the valley's annual demand for 13.3 million acre feet of water is not being met by existing supply. Traditional surface water resources once used by farmers are now being used to boost river flows through the Delta region under the guise of habitat and fishery restoration. The state water board wants more water. Some argue those increased flows are not working to increase fish populations. Current regulations require 3.9 million acre feet of outflow from all San Joaquin Valley tributaries through the Delta. Phillips says the increased flow the state water board wants will reduce the 8.2 million acre feet available to water farms and cities. Reduced Delta water imports now down to about 2.8 million acre feet from 3.3 million acre feet makes water problems worse for increasing demand for groundwater in an area where groundwater management plans will mandate reduced pumping. Add the 8.2 million acre feet in local supplies to 2.8 million acre feet Delta imports and the total 11 million acre feet falls to 2.3 million acre feet now, my amount doesn't make sense. Short of valley demand, Phillips says, a shortfall that will only grow larger if the state water board gets its way. Prior to the passage of the Central Valley Project Improvement Act, CVPIA, in 1992, water allocations to San Joaquin Valley farmers averaged 93%. That fell to 75% after the act was implemented. By 2007, court-ordered environmental biological opinions and further regulatory restrictions reduced the average to just 32%, though the doubt played a key role in the latter. Achieving sustainability is a matter of math, and Phillips' numbers continue not add up. Phillips says the largest factor in achieving a sustainable water balance must come through new surface water storage. He cautions people to not view irrigation efficiency or recycling as means to achieve water balance. These just won't help. While agreeing that water efficiency is good, he emphasized that farmers are already doing this and that there's little added benefit or increased water that will result from the complete adoption of water-thrifty irrigation systems. Moreover, the reduced groundwater recharge and soil health have become unintended consequences of these systems. Furrow and flood irrigation that once recharged aquifers while watering crops no longer happens. Further, natural soil salts that were once flushed past root zones by these irrigation practices now concentrate at the surface, choking out crops and making land difficult to farm. California water bond. In November, a new 8.87 billion water bond is set to go to voters in November that would in part allocate 750 million to address subsidence on the Free Current Canal, a particularly critical issue for water users among the southern third of the canal system. Since water deliveries are reduced by 60% because of the lower capacity of the canal, Dr. Jerry Merrill, director of California Water Program and Natural Heritage Institute, says the November water bound differs greatly from what is billed as a water bond on the June ballot. While the June measures has some water elements in it, he says it is largely a mechanism to fund parks. There's never been a water bond like this, he says of the November measure. About half of the bond will fund issues important to the Central Valley. Included are funds for SGMA compliance, the money for drinking water to disadvantaged communities, water recycling, and desalination of inland water use.
water sources will also be addressed. We can win this campaign, Merrill says. Numerous water agencies and agriculture groups have already come out in support of the bond. Regulatory reactions. Phillips invited regulatory representatives to address water issues, Carla Nemeth. Director of the California Department of Water Resources, David Murillo, Regional Director of the Bureau of Reclamation's Mid-Pacific Region in Austin, Aero, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Water and Science in the Department of Interior, explained issues and likely changes that could bode well for Californians. One is the long-awaited raising of Shasta Dam. Murillo and Ewell said efforts are underway to be in construction to boost the capacity of Shasta Dam by raising the dam 18 feet, studies indicate another six, 600, 634,000-acre-feet of capacity could be added to the reservoir, which currently holds 4.55 million acre-feet. And well, is more optimistic than Murillo on Shasta Dam projects, saying flatly that the goal is to begin moving dirt by the end of 2019. Raising Shasta Dam is probably the highest priority <clears throat> right now because it's the easiest one to get shovels in the ground. Rio says USBR is looking at various other storage projects. He notes including site reservoirs in Northern California and Temperance Flat. Both projects are seeking money from the last state water bond to begin construction, but so far the state has not awarded any money for them. Won't back off. Nemeth is Governor Brown's latest appointee to head the Department of Water Resources. While there's less than a year left in the current state administration, she says the governor is not going to back off from any of the, any of his priorities. Those include California water fix about two weeks after the free up meeting where she spoke. Metropolitan Water District of Southern California directors agreed to fund most of the controversial twin tunnel project voting by a two-to-one margin to provide nearly $11 billion towards construction of a project that would build tunnels to bypass the Delta with water from the Sacramento River. Some of the water could be sold to farmers to help MWD, which supplies drinking water to half of the state's population, recover some of its costs. I applaud MWD's leadership to step up and keep this important project moving forward. Phillips said in a prepared statement, because the Delta is so complex, there are still many issues that need to be resolved, including those related to how federal contractors in the Valley might participate. This action should help facilitate resolving many of those issues while not hindering forward progress on implementation. Title transfer. Phillips says the measure from the Trump administration seems positive as officials continue to ask how the federal government can get out of the way of project ideas sought by local officials. I will tell you, with this administration, the message they give you on every issue you bring up is that they honestly want to know how we can solve these problems. Perhaps one of the more innovative approaches in the mix is the title transfer of federal water projects to local agencies. In the case of Freant Water Authority, FWA, this could mean transferring title to the 150-mile-plus canal owned by the Bureau of Reclamation to the FWA. 
Grant currently manages the canal system for reclamation, which includes funding, maintenance, and operations of the system. According to Ewell, the Trump administration is interested in the idea and has directed Interior and Reclamation to discuss the practicalities of how this might take place. For some projects, a title transfer will require an act of Congress. For other non-controversial projects, an effort is underway to give the Secretary of Interior authority to transfer these less complicated projects to local control. As is already the case, the FWA operates and maintains the Fremont Current Canal at a lower cost than the federal government could. Phillips said, still, because it is owned by reclamation, certain projects require federal approval and permitting before they can take place. This is burdensome, and that is why we want to look into title transfer. California water. Oh, yeah. All right, so voters okayed billions for new reservoirs in 2014. California is about to start spending. April 20th, 2018 by Dale Kessler. Californians took a big step Friday toward launching a new multi-billion dollar wave of reservoir construction. After being accused of being overly tight-fisted with taxpayer dollars, the California Water Commission released updated plans for allocating nearly $2.6 billion in bond funds approved by voters during the depths of the drought. The money will help fund eight reservoirs and other water storage projects, including the Sprawling Sites Reservoir in the Sacramento Valley and a small groundwater bank in the South Sacramento County. In its new blueprint, which remains tentative, the Water Commission nearly triples the amount of money it will spend compared to a preliminary allocation it put out in February. With climate change expected to diminish the Sierra Nevada snowpack, the new reservoirs are seen as a way of bolstering California's ability to store water. It's a $5.2 billion project straddling the Glen Colsa County line. The $2.7 billion temperance flat reservoir east of Fresno would become the two largest reservoirs built in California since Jerry Brown's first stint as governor in the 1970s. The entire commission is eager to get all this money out the door and fund these projects as fast as possible, said Armando Quintero, the commission's chairman. The agency will hold hearings in early May and make its final determination in July. The money comes courtesy of Proposition 1, a water board approved by voters in 2014. The local water agencies promoted 11 different projects applied for a share of the money. But in early February, the Water Commission declared most of them weren't eligible for nearly as much funding as they requested. The applicants were deemed eligible for a total of just $942 million, about one-fifth of what they wanted and considerably less than what's available. The result was instant controversy. The lawmakers and others said the commission was thwarting the will of the voters. One legislator appeared at a commission meeting dragging a child's red wagon full of petitions demanding the money be spent in full. The protest peaked amid concerns that another drought was coming, although late spring storms have eased some of those fears. On February, the commission said eight projects now are considered eligible for almost $2.6 billion in total. That roughly matches the amount of available dollars. Voters authorized $2.7 billion in spending, but the pot shrinks to just under $2.6 billion because of bond finance costs and other expenses. What changed since February? 
The commission says that applicants have done a better job of making their case for the funds. Although the bond was touted in large part as a drought relief measure, the rules governing Prop 1 says the state's dollars can't be used for water storage. The funds can only go towards the implement of a project that would provide public benefits, such as flood control, recreation, and especially improvements to the environment. In initial analysis, the Water Commission said most of the applicants didn't adequately spell out their public benefits and what they're worth financially. That left the project proponents struggling for a response. For instance, proponents for Sites Reservoirs, which would feed off Sacramento's River, hold twice as much water as Folsom Lake. Much argued that it would create a much-needed pool of cold water to support the region's dwindling Chinook salmon population but the water agencies promoting the site have struggled to prove the monetary worth of the additional fish. Tell me what the dollar value is of a returning salmon with any accuracy, Jim Watson of the site's project of authority said in February. After weeks of back and forth with site's officials, the Water Commission staff has agreed the project is eligible for $933 million in Prop 1 dollars. $662 million originally earmarked. Joe Yoon, a Water Commission's executive author, said more explicit project proposals benefited sites and other applicants. They provide the information we needed to substantiate the benefits, Yoon said. The staff gave sites additional credit for extra water it could deliver in summer but for the near, nearly extinct Delta smell, but the dollars are still well short of the $1.4 billion of the reservoir's backers are seeking. The site's project authority chairman, Fritzger, said in a prepared meeting that we think there is still room for discussion. Temperance flat. On the San Joaquin River was completely shut out in the Waters Commission's initial analysis. Now it's eligible for $171 million in funding out of $1 billion requested. The reservoir expected to cost $2.7 billion. A small groundwater bank proposed by the Sacramento Regional County Sanitation District is eligible for $244 million, up slightly from its initial allocation. Two bare area projects that originally had been denied any Prop 1 money now are in line for funding. Expansion of Los Vaqueros Reservoir in Contra Costa County and Pacheco Reservoir east of Gilroy have been slated to receive $400 million each. Get your water, uh, get your water, bum, bum. Mm-hmm. What is important? All right, a little more of the liquids. How California water suppliers are getting earthquake ready. You know, let's just start that again. Note that down. How California waters. Three, two, one. How California water suppliers are getting earthquake ready. Californians know another big one will be coming someday. In preparation, the state's major water suppliers have been working to seismically retrofit key infrastructure, but vulnerabilities remain. As is often said, it's not a matter of if, but of when. A large earthquake strikes the heart of one of California's most densely populated regions. State officials and local agencies know the clock is ticking. And mile by mile, by pipe, work crews are replacing or retrofitting water lines throughout much of Los Angeles and San Francisco Bay areas. 
Upgrades have also been made in Sacramento, San Joaquin Delta, the heart of the state's water distribution system, where potential levee ruptures have made water officials uneasy for decades. The San Andreas Fault, which generated the 1906 7.9 magnitude and 1989 6.9 magnitude Bay Area earthquakes, could potentially produce a quake greater than 8.0. However, the Hayward Fault is widely considered the greater threat at this moment in geological time. Scientists consider a 7.0 magnitude quake to be the largest likely to occur on the Hayward Fault an offshoot of the San Andreas that runs through San Jose. Oakland, Berkeley, and Richmond, the Hayward Fault hasn't slipped significantly since 1868, and experts say it's over two for the proverbial big one. In the historical and global context, 7.0 isn't huge, but if it strikes a heavily populated area, the damage could be significant. About 5,000 water connections that cross the Hayward Fault, as well as several critical water mains, could potentially be sheared in half by a powerful trembler, according to Richard Sykes, Director of Natural Resources, East Bay Municipal Utility District, that's just within East Bay MED service area. The San Francisco water supply, sourced from Hetch Hetchy Reservoir in Yosemite National Park, also travels through large pipes across major East Bay fault zones. Several of its reservoirs, including Crystal Springs, San Andreas and Calaveras sit literally on the San Andreas and Calaveras faults, with the water actually contained within the linear depressions created by these tectonic plate boundaries. It's sort of a joke here that two of our reservoirs are named after their faults, said Stephen Ritchie, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission Assistant and General Manager for Water. To protect the water supply of their collective 4 billion customers, both East Bay Municipal Utilities District and the San Francisco Public Utilities Center have protected their water mains from clever engineering systems that allow the earth to shift around the pipes, which range from six to nine feet in diameter, without damaging them. One of the San Francisco Public Utility Commission's major pipes is fitted with ball joints and slip joints that allow the steel line tube to shift and move, breaking. The San Francisco Public Utilities Commission's ongoing upgrades are part of the $4.8 billion regional management program, of which a key element is major seismic upgrades. Among East Bay's municipal, major utility district, utilities district, major supply pipes, critical sections, and high-risk fault zones have been retrofitted so they can shift and flex within spacious concrete tunnels. The pipe is on high rollers, so that when that offset occurs, it can move with shifting earth, said Andrea Poop, an East Bay MED spokesman, referring to a 2,000-foot section of pipeline bored through the East Bay Hills. That tunnel could actually shear, but without shearing the pipe itself, he added. For the unlikely event that the main water line is ruptured, East Bay keeps a six-month supply of reservoir water ready on the west side of the hills. In Southern California, the Metropolitan Water District also has a six-month backup supply of water at hand, stored in reservoirs on the west side of the San Andreas Fault. That will buy us time to make any necessary repairs, said Gordon Johnson, Metropolitan's chief engineer. He said his district began seriously seismically upgrading reservoirs, dams, and various structures following the San Fernando earthquake of 1971. In early morning, 6.7 magnitude quake that tore the region apart 
killing 64 people and destroying freeways, sewer lines, and thousands of buildings. Now he said the agency, which delivers water to about 12 million people, is working on strengthening canals, aqueducts, and pipelines. The district, in conjunction with the California Department of Water Resources, said the city of Los Angeles has formed a seismic task force that is currently identifying weak spots in local water supply system and developing emergency response plans. The preparations include stockpiling repair equipment and materials near likely rupture locations on numerous local faults. And two projects now in the works aim to seismically protect the Colorado River Aqueduct, as well as a seven-foot-wide delivers treated water to several million people north of Long Beach. The federal government also has its eye on California and its shifting tectonic plates. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation has seismically retrofitted seven dams, according to Stephen Milovic, the agency's mid-Pacific region chief engineer. More upgrades, he says, are in the works. Meanwhile, the California Division of Safety of Dams has mandated extensive upgrades to dams. Over the past two decades, inspections by the state agency, a branch of the Department of Water Resources, have resulted in dam owners spending more than $1.5 billion on repairing and upgrading dams to protect them from seismic risks, according to Aaron Mellon, a spokesperson with the Department of Water Resources. Experts with their agency were unavailable for a phone interview and questions sent in email about the seismic upgrade in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta were not answered. According to Sykes at the East Bay Department of Water Resources, has provided his district with a $35 million grant to upgrade Delta levees that specifically protect the Mokume Aqueduct, which passes through the estuary. Sykes said upgrades to levees are generally made in accordance to standards of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. At the University of California, Los Angeles, Scott Brandenburg, a professor of the Department of Civil and Engineering, has extensively studied the delta and its levees. He said the earthen barriers, which protect and contain more than 1,000 maze-like miles of critical water supply channels, are not threatened as much by the Hayward and San Andreas faults as they are by more localized ones like the Dunningham Hills Fault, the Gordon Valley Fault, and the Midland Fault. These faults wouldn't be capable of producing a 7.8 earthquake like the San Andreas, but they could still cause strong shaking and serious damage, he says. One or more levee ruptures in the delta could potentially flood freshwater supplies with salt water, which would be a disaster for the state. These levees are vulnerable to a variety of reasons. For one, Brandenburg said many were built on peat, which is soft and be- become more so during an earthquake. In places, the levees are built on sand, which can essentially liquefy during intense shaking. I don't think any improvements to these levees have, been made, have made them earthquake-proof. All in all, he said, the system is very fragile. In fact, the Delta's vulnerability to earthquake damage is among the main arguments for building the controversial Delta tunnels. The system would move water under the Delta and connect it to the pumps at the south edge. It's much easier to protect and maintain a system like that, Brandenburg says, with the potential of a Colorado River shortage declaration looming as the Lake Mead drops 
Arizona is struggling with the politics of who will have to cut their water use and by how much as Arizona wrestles, it is important to remember how we got here. It's easy to blame today's problems on over-allocated river and declining reservoir levels, on drought and climate change. Both of these do play a role, but our predecessors knew 50 years ago that this was inevitable. In 68, Congress debated authorization of the Central Arizona Project, CAF. It was clear that there was not enough water to supply the 336-mile-long canal which diverts Colorado River water. But the federal government, with Arizona's enthusiastic support and concurrence of the other six U.S. states in Colorado River Basin, charged ahead. The objective of the half century of river development that had gone before had not changed in the 1968. Massive dams and canals would supply water to farms and city financial might of the federal government. But the fictions on which the preceding half-century's water development had been based enough water for all, and a surplus at that could no longer be supported by real-world hydrology of the Colorado River. Today, the Central Arizona Project, pumping 1.5 million acre-feet per year to the farms, tribes, and cities of the Phoenix and Tucson's Valley. It's essential to Arizona's water supply future. But the record left by the project's congressional debates a half a century ago was clear, even before we had an inkling for the implications of climate change. The basin's leadership understood the CAP's long-term water supply would be far less than 1.5 million acre-feet. Experts in 1960s agreed that by 2030, the CAP's reliable water supply as a project with the most junior priority on the lower river would be less than 900,000 acre-feet per year and that in many years its actual diversions would be zero. It was Floyd Dominey, the legendary head of the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, who delivered the bad news in 65 as hearings on the Central Arizona project began. Sooner or later, Dominey told members of the House Subcommittee on Irrigation and Reclamation to be on irrigation everywhere. The most sooner natural flows in the Colorado River will not be sufficient to meet the water demands, either in the lower basin or the upper basin, if these great regions of the nation are to maintain their established economies and realize their growth potential. Since the early 1900s, we have repeatedly overestimated how much the water the Colorado River could provide. Scientists have suggested otherwise, were ignored or marginalized. The negotiators of the 22 Colorado River Compact believe the natural flow of the river of the left area was 17.5 million acre-feet per year. By the mid-1960s, the reality of the river's actual hydrology natural flow of 15 million acre-feet per year could no longer be ignored. The politicians and basin water officials turned to a dreamy fiction. All the base needed to do was augment the river with a series of canals, pumping plants, and pipelines to import water from the Columbia River Basin in the Northwest, in the Pacific Northwest. With the compact and treaty with Mexico allocated 17.5 million acres, but the river only produced 15 million, they would find 2.3 million acre feet somewhere else. Where the fish get the water? But the Columbia Basin State they blocked that option despite the reality that there would be no augmentation. Congress of the acquisitions of the Colorado River Basin approved the cap. This guaranteed the situation we have today. The CAP, a project essential to the water supply of one of the fastest growing states the nation has by legislative design, an unreliable water supply. 
would be easy to blame Arizona for expanding based on the fiction that there was enough water to fill its cap, but it is not alone. California, too, overbuilt based on unrealistic expectations of a surplus on the river large enough to fill its Colorado River aqueduct, which provides critical water to millions of people from Los Angeles to San Diego. The managers of these products now face the politically daunting task of cannibalizing their agricultural neighbors with the senior rights to provide water their customers rely on. The process that is already well underway in California. <clears throat> in the upper basin, the Trans Mountain diversions that provide water to growing season in Colorado Front Range and Utah's Wasachat Front are in the same situation. Even as others continue to arbor grand plans to export even more water out of the basin, projects sponsored try to improve the reliability of their junior rights as the expense of the agricultural neighbors. This will not get easier. With climate change, we have the faith, the probability that the 15 million acre foot river at Lee's Ferry, who refused to accept in 1968, is now a 13 million acre foot river and headed down. The genius of the 1922 Colorado River Compact was a social contract between the faster and slower growing basins that enabled the political coalitions necessary to pass federal legislation to develop the river. Today, the basin fully developed and over-allocated. The problem is the relocation of supplies between agricultural districts with senior rights in cities that, though holding junior rights, require certainty. Can we find a similar social contract between cities, agricultural tribes, and environment and recreational communities to allow relocation to proceed in a manner acceptable to all? Oh, man. Water is something. So we are made of it. We need it. Knife control movement crosses Atlantic. Texas mother demands restriction on blades. The knife control movement has crossed the Atlantic. Just days after the mayor of London where stabbings have surged in recent years, Tweet that anyone caught with a knife will feel the full force of the law. A Texas mother who forks her next. Texas mother who lost her son in a knife attack is taking action. PJ Media reporter Lori Brown said the suspect who allegedly attacked her son could not have been allowed to have an illegal knife on him and use it to murder someone. She's lobbying Texas to public governor Greg Abbott more restrictions on lives. As, as with gun control, she seems focused more on, res, on restricting access to the weapon the murderer used than on enabling victims to defend themselves, the report says. Her son, University of Texas Austin, Austin student Harrison Brown, died in a stabbing attack on campus in May 2017. I have nothing to lose. I will not take no for an answer, Brown declared. If something like the stabbing attack happens, happens again. I just don't know what I'll do. Authorities have charged Kendak's White, 21, with the murder and aggravated assault of the stabbing spree that killed Brown's son. The police reported that he used a Bowie-style hunting knife to attack and injure four students. Weeks after the attack, the governor signed HB 1935 into law allowing citizens to carry Bowie knives in more locations though they still cannot be carried on college campuses. Brown said the new law disregards her son's death. <laughs> people need to protect themselves from people with knives. 
with knives. It really did feel like a slap in the face, she said. She wants a repeal and amendments to the law. I'd also like to see some changes made on college campuses, university campuses, and with this house bill that prevent knives, bowie knives, swords, machetes from getting into the wrong hands and coming onto campus, she said. The report said the law made it legal to carry a variety of knives, including daggers and dirks, but it still disallows blades more than 5.5 inches long in some areas. Following London Mayor Siddiq Khan's move to control knives, in London, authorities have reported 50 stabbing deaths already this year. Police are tweeting images of items they've confiscated, including scissors, screwdrivers, pliers, and gardening tools, declaring relief that such implements were now in police custody. The Muslim mayor is acting silly, frankly, because bad guys who use knives to commit crimes are not going to turn these knives in. Just that simple. It's like bad guys aren't going to turn their guns in, said Workman, who is also affiliated with the Second Amendment Foundation. I think this is an example of government run amok. They think they're going to solve a problem by disarming the wrong people. Workman continued, they've already disarmed the wrong people by taking their guns away from them and that makes them vulnerable to knife attack. I'm dumbfounded by the dumbfoundness of the people in London under this mayor. One of the stabbing deaths this year came when a 78-year-old British man plunged a knife into the upper body of a home intruder, who later died. Police arrested the man on suspicion of murder and applauded citizens erected a memorial to the deceased criminal across the street until neighbors tore it down. This 70-year-old man was simply defending himself inside the confines of his home from this criminal. For the Brits to even suggest they might put him on trial for murder is just asinine. At least in the United States, we still recognize that individual citizen has the right to defend himself or herself from violent crime. In Great Britain, apparently it's not that way anymore. Over 100,000 people in the U.S. die each year from adverse reactions to prescription drugs. Over 100,000 people in the United States die each year from adverse reactions to prescription drugs prescribed by a doctor and taken in accordance with the doctor's order, making it the fourth leading cause of death. Seems like the FDA has its priorities all effed up. Where's the big money Kratom lobby when we need it? And why doesn't the media ever talk about this? Probably because Big Pharma spends millions on ads and media execs own lots of stock in pharma companies. Prevalence and incidents. Why learn about adverse drug reactions? The first question healthcare providers should ask themselves is why is it important to learn about adverse drug reactions? The answer is because adverse drug reactions are one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality in healthcare, the Institute of Medicine reported in January 2000 that from 44,000 to 98,000 deaths occur annually from medical errors. Of this total, an estimated 7,000 deaths occur due to adverse drug reactions. To put this in perspective, consider that 6,000 Americans die each year from workplace injuries. 
However, other studies conducted in hospitalized patients' populations have placed much higher estimates on the overall incidence of serious ADRs. This study estimates that 6.7% of hospitalized patients have a serious adverse drug reaction with a fatality rate of 0.32%. If these estimates are correct, then there are more than 2,200,000 serious adverse drug reactions in hospitalized patients causing over 106,000 deaths annually. If true, then adverse drug reactions are the fourth leading cause of death ahead of pulmonary disease, diabetes, AIDS, pneumonia, accidents, and automobile deaths. These statistics do not include the number of ADRs that occur in ambulatory settings. Also, it is estimated that over 350,000 ADRs, adverse drug reactions, occur in the U.S. nursing homes each year. The exact number of adverse drug reactions is not certain and is limited to methodological considerations. However, whatever the true number is, adverse drug reactions represent a significant public health problem that is for the most part preventable. The Committee on Quality of Healthcare in America Institute of Medicine airs Human Building a Safer Health System, Washington, D.C., National Academy Press 2000. L. Zero. There we go. There it is. There is Human. Uh, Lazaro J. Pomeranz, B. Corny PN, Incidents of Adverse Drug Reaction in Hospitalized Patients, All Middle Analysts. Protection Studies, JAMA, 98, Incidents and Preventability of Adverse Drug Events in Nursing Homes. <clears throat> All right. Everybody, remember to go outside. Uh, Sunday, April 22nd, uh, Spectacular Lear Meteor Shower will peak on April 22nd. Hold on. Okay, we're back. Lyrids are classified as medium-strength shower. The spectacular celestial shower is in the off is in the often as scientists expect the lunar meteor shower to peak shortly before dawn on April 22nd. Of course, a day late. They print it. Up to 20 meteors per hour will likely be visible overnight on April 21st, 22nd, as NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory the view lunar shower to be fine area from light pollution. As the waxing moon may interfere with visibility, the best time to view, it is a few hours after the moon sets. Special equipment like telescopes, binoculars are not necessary to view the meteor shower, which is safe to view with the naked eyes. According to Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Lyrid meteors are active from April 14th through the 30th. They peak on the 22nd. There's still some outside. In the early morning sky, a patient observer will see up to more than a dozen meteors per hour in this medium strength shower, with 18 meteors per hour calculated for the peak. U.S. observers should see good rates on the night before and after this peak. A bright first quarter moon plays havoc with sky conditions, marring most of the typically faint Lyra meteors. But Lyra will be high overhead after the moon sets at midnight, so that's the best time to look for the Lyrids. 15 minutes ago, the lyrids are classified as medium-strength shower. To quote NASA, lyrids are pieces of debris from the periodic comet C-1861 G1 Thatcher and have been observed for more than 2,600 years 
The mid-April of each year, Earth runs into the stream of debris from the comet, which causes a later meteor shower. You can tell if a particular meteor belongs to a particular meteor shower, tracing back its path to see if it originates near a specific point in the sky called the radiant. The constellation in which the radiant is located gives the shower its name. In this case, it appears to come from the point in the constellation in the area. EU pretends not to see Israeli, Israel's calculated slaughter in Gaza. Why is the European Union pretending not to see how Israel is deliberately killing civilians in the occupied Gaza Strip? On Friday, Israel killed more than four unarmed protesters, including a 14-year-old Mohammed Abarju, who and injured hundreds more. This brought to more than 30 the number of Palestinians killed by the Israel in the violent suppression of the Great March of Return rallies that began on March 30th and are planned to continue until May 15th, Nakba Day, commemorating the 1948 ethnic cleansing of Palestine. The victims include four children and a journalist. Thousands more have been urgent injured more than 1,600 by live ammunition that caused devastating injuries likely to leave them with lifelong disabilities. Two weeks ago, the International Crime Court Chief prosecuted one Israeli leaders that they could end up on trial for this violence against civilians. But as I told the Real News on Friday, the coddling rewards Israel receives, particularly from the United States and European Union, mean that Israeli leaders feel completely immune and are continuing to carry out these killings. You can watch the video of that. There's videos of that. On Saturday, the European Union called on Israel to refrain from using lethal force against unarmed protesters, claiming that a full investigation is needed to understand what happened and why four more people, including a child, Muhammad Ayub, were killed. This came after weeks of Europeans officially rationalizing Israeli violence, suddenly laying blame on Palestinians for their own deaths. But once again, the EU has utterly failed to condemn. <coughs> Israel's actions and presenting itself as bewildered about what is happening as if there has not already been a mountain of evidence collected by independent human rights and medical organizations including Human Rights Watch, Al-Haq, Betel, Al-Meza, and Medical Aid for Palestinians, Medicine Sons Frontiers, and a number of UN experts concerning the horrific results of Israel's openly declared policy to shoot people who pose no conceivable threat. This includes direct incitement by Israeli officers to kill children. And on top of that, the slain of Muhammad Abu was seen by eyewitnesses, caught on video, showing the boy presented no conceivable danger to anybody when he was killed. If that isn't enough, the Israeli army has defended the killing. Ayub stating that all shots fired on Friday were according to the rules of engagement. Yet let us take the EU at its word that it believes in the need for an independent investigation in order to understand what is happening and find its way out of the fog. On March 31st, the day after Israel killed 17 Palestinians as tens of thousands took part in the first great march of return rallies, the EU Foreign Policy Chief Federica Marin joined UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in demanding an independent, transparent investigation. On April 18th, I wrote to Marhani's usually responsive press team to ask what the EU had done for more than two weeks since its call for investigation to make one happen. Please know I'm not reiterating the EU's desire, wish, aspiration, hope, belief, etc. for such an investigation, my inquiry stated. My question is, how is very specific as to what actions the EU is taking? 
Three days, four killings, and hundreds of injuries later, I was seeing Lancer. What I can say with certainty is that in the meantime, EU officials and European government continue to pour money into Israeli's arms industry, and they have effusively celebrated Israel's so-called independence, the founding of the apartheid state, and only continues to exist due to subjugation, exclusion, and regular massacres of the Palestinians. Lame. All right, here we go. California moves to ban religious texts could end sale of the Bible. News commentary. Democrats in the alt-left state of California passed a bill in the assembly that would ban the sale of books that express Christian beliefs about sexual morality, quite possibly extending the printed text such as the Bible. No surprise there are all this same party that once tried to abolish God from their official political platform. Three times, Assembly Bill 2943, which passed by vote 50 to 18, seeks to eliminate the sale or lease of goods or services to any consumer that promote sexual orientation change efforts within an individual. These efforts are substantially, substantially, subsequently defined as efforts to change behaviors or gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings towards individuals of the same sex. The bill instills sex as an act meant for marriage between a man and a woman. In other words, its teachings seek to reduce sexual attractions towards individuals of the same sex. Even the Los Angeles Times has raised the possibility that such a bill could lead to a ban on Bibles. One key part of the debate centers on whether Assembly Bill 2943 would stretch beyond businesses that charge for these programs and extend to printed documents. They wrote, even Bibles. Randy Thomason, president of Save California.com, says, seems to think it's possible. A church bookstore selling the Bible, of course, selling a book about marriage and sexual purity or overcoming homosexuality or overcoming transsexuality, he explained. You could see a member of the public or even a member of the state government saying, Hey, that's illegal. Assemblywoman Susan Eggman said Democrat who voted in favor of measure focused her attention on the gay conservation therapy aspect already banned by mental health professionals of those under age 18 in California. She scoffed at Christians concerned about displaying the front of free speech saying, to say, hey, but you could still try to pray the gay way if you like, just not with the guidance of a Bible apparently. This extreme bill now to the Senate. Thank you. You've been listening to Smoke News Radio on uh, Blog Talk. And uh, keep listening further. I've got a few more articles to go on the uh, YouTube side. Smoke News Radio. Bum, bum, sh- do, 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 do. Woo-hoo.